0: Hey, can I ask you a question? I have a question. Can I ask you something? This is a big question. But not
1: too big of a question. It's a question about God.
0: It's about Jesus. Maybe it's more about the Bible.
1: Do you do you read the Bible? So my question is really not for me.
0: Yeah, it's for my friend. No, they go to a different church. Like, a long ways away. It's my lab partner's little brother. Whose wife is my dog walker. It's this guy at work, but in a different department. Really, my, my dog's uncle's brother? Just to be clear.
1: I'm just asking for a friend.
0: Just asking for a friend.
1: I'm asking for a friend.
0: Asking for a friend. Just asking for a friend.
1: Do, do dogs even have uncles? Man, that's so good. Well, hey, good morning and welcome, everyone. Just a quick heads up. I have decided just in the spur of the moment to change my message. We're going to be looking at the question, do dogs have uncles? All right, so I hope you're okay with that. But no, it's good to be together with you. Paul Hamm over at Westonka, I see you. That was all volunteers, people from our church with our creative team. Can we just give them a round of applause? We've got some talented people here at Westwood. Well, my name is Zach Bush, and I have the joy of serving as one of the pastors here at Westwood, and it's my honor today to kick off this sermon series called Asking for a Friend. Now, why this series? Well, a few months back, we put out a survey asking every person here a little bit of the the, the idea of what are some of the questions that you are wrestling with right now in terms of life and of faith. And when it was all said and done, we had over 800 responses And so for the next 800 Sundays, we're going to be, I'm kidding, for the next six or so Sundays, we're going to be looking at some of the thematic questions that uh, were really raised during that survey, and it's going to be a lot of fun. And so asking for a friend, it's really kind of that disclaimer, if you will, that you don't really want to make it seem like you're asking a question in case, you know, you're kind of like embarrassed to ask it. But as I was thinking about it and prepping for today, I I thought about some of the best asking for a friend questions that I heard. Some of them, for example, go like this You know, if I eat this entire Big Mac and nobody watches, do the calories count? Asking for a friend. Okay, or maybe for some of the guys here, it's like, hey, you know, Pride and Prejudice, who is the author of that book? Asking for a friend. Okay, or this one, you know, as a Southerner, it's like, hey, Minnesota, what's up with your weather asking for a friend? Okay, anyone amen to that? Amen to that? But what we ultimately see is that whenever you begin to put that disclaimer out there, there's oftentimes a little bit of maybe shame, guilt, or fear. Because you don't want to be embarrassed for thinking, I don't know enough about these questions. And so I'm going to put a little distance between myself and that question so that I may not look foolish. And I think that this is so important for us because, like I said, over the next several weeks, we're gonna be digging into these questions. And so I just wanna invite you and just encourage you. It's not foolish for you to ask these questions. In fact, I want to invite you to lean in and ask questions, lean in and really wrestle with faith. I know that in my own faith journey, I, I began to ask questions a lot rather than abandoning the questions to lean in and to wrestle with those questions. And that's whenever I learned and grew the most in my own faith journey. And if I'm honest, I still ask questions a lot of times. But over the next several weeks, we'll look at questions like this. Uh, why is the church and Christians, why are they sometimes so judgmental asking for a friend? Okay, we're going to look at the question of, you know, if God is all good, why is there so much suffering? Asking for a friend. And so today, it's my joy to kick off the topic, digging into the question, how do we know that the Bible is reliable? I know you're not asking that question. You have friends that are asking that question. Do you see what I did there? Okay. So asking for a friend, how can we know the Bible is trustworthy, credible, and reliable? And it got me thinking a little bit to set the stage for us a bit. Uh, there have been some surveys done over the last 40 plus years looking at the state of American citizens who really had a view to Christianity and to things of faith. And so they asked people to respond back in 1976 to this question. The question was this, the Bible is the actual word of God. Okay, yes or no, or how do you respond? In 1976, just kind of a general population, 38% would have said, yes, the Bible is the actual word of God asking Americans. Well, fast forward 40 years later, in 2017, 24% would have said yes. So in 40 years, there was a 14% drop. People began to kind of ask that question, is the Bible the actual word of God? But it's not only that, another statistic is really digging into the younger population, the population of 18 to 29-year-olds asking that question. In 1976, 32% would have said yes, so one in three, but now in 2017, 12%. Would have said yes. That is a 20% drop. And so you can begin to see and unpack that uh, in today's day and age, there are people that are continually questioning is the Bible credible, reliable, trustworthy? And really, what is the purpose of Scripture? And so some of you might be sitting in that statistic and you might think to yourself, man, I'm one of those people kind of in that 30% range where, yeah, I believe that the the Bible is God's Word. And, And so you might see some of these stats and kind of have some concern or fear. And that's okay, too. Maybe for some of you, though, you might be in that majority. You might think to yourself, yeah, I don't believe that the Bible is God's word. I don't see the point. I don't see the purpose in that. And if that's you, I want to say thank you. Thank you for being here with us today. My hope today and each week following is not to give answers, but rather to give a reasonable response for why we can have trust in God's word. And so once again, I invite you, bring your questions. Let's lean in and dig into this together. And so today, what we're going to be looking at as we think about the Bible, I want us to, to really look at two key questions, to give you a little bit of a, a preview and a roadmap. And those two questions that we're going to look at today, first of all starts with this: How can we know the Bible is trustworthy? Just plain and simple. How can we know the the Bible is credible and trustworthy? And just to be honest here, we're gonna be looking at some of the, uh, almost like a a college level, seminary level, uh, kind of external credibility. But then the secondary, if it's this, if the Bible is trustworthy, what do we do with it then? Okay, if, if the Bible truly is trustworthy, what do we do with it in our lives? So a little bit of uh, intellect, uh, you know, enlarging our heads, and then down here, our hearts and our hands. How can we begin to dig into God's word? So that's what we'll be looking at today. How do we know it's true? And then if it is true, what do we do with it? We're really looking at that first idea. How do we know it's true? You know, I think a lot of people, if, if they're honest with themselves, whenever they look at the Bible... Uh, so often people are just thinking, how can we really trust the credibility? Because, you know, there is a time gap between where we are now today in 2023 and 2,000 years ago. And a lot of people say, you know what, I feel like the Bible, the message has been distorted. I mean, it has to have been distorted over the last hundreds of years. And so what we're going to be looking at to really uh, affirm the reliability is this. We'll look at first an external and then second an internal reliability for Scripture. So external and internal. So a little bit of like a college level. I invite you to strap in your seatbelts. Let's get after it. Because when you think about the external reliability of scripture, a lot of times people have this big objection. And they really ask this question, which is this. Isn't the Bible really just one big telephone game? Okay, isn't the Bible just one big telephone game? Okay, for those of you who have never played the telephone game, it's a riot. Maybe you can go home and play that today with some family members. But here's how you play the telephone game. Okay, you get a string of people lined up uh, shoulder to shoulder. And, and what they begin to do is, is one person shares a message. And then it gets passed down to the next person, down to the next person, down to the next person, down to the next person. And the idea is that that first person is really going to share really a goofy, crazy, kind of audacious statement. And the crazier the statement, the more fun the game is. Okay, so here's what it would look like. The person at the very end with the original message would say something like this. Water buffaloes. Water buffaloes stomp steadily through raw potatoes to create creamy au jus. (laughs) Y'all got that? Okay, so you begin to see, it's like, what is going through Zach's mind right now? Okay, Joel talks about how he always has the the monkeys in his brains. I've got water buffaloes, I guess, okay? Okay more stampeding through my mind. But you can just imagine, as that crazy statement about water buffaloes is passed down in the next person, down to the next person, down to the next person, when it gets to that final person and they share the message, guess what? They're not gonna be referencing water buffaloes and creamy au jus, okay? It's gonna be completely distorted and completely different. And so now all of a sudden people are like, well that's what the Bible is like, isn't it? Because it's just been one distorted telephone game passed along. The original message is completely lost but the one thing that we can begin to look at is really a test. And this is where external reliability comes in. And that test that we can apply to scripture is this. It's called textual criticism. Okay, and textual criticism is used not just on the Bible but other historical documents that can really begin to unpack from an external viewpoint how reliable are these letters, these books, these documentations. And the way that textual criticism works is it looks at two things it looks at manuscript copies. And the idea is the greater number of manuscript copies, the better. But then it also looks at what is the timing between the original, perceived original message when things were written, and the timing of when those copies emerged. So what you really want is you want a high number of copies of manuscripts and you want a tight timeline, okay? So it's kind of like deep and wide, all right? You want a high level of manuscripts and a tight timeline when it comes to textual criticism. And so let's just kind of unpack. How is it exactly that ancient documents were passed along? Let me let you in on a little something. Uh, They were used by scribes. And the reason for this is because 2,000 years ago, there was no such thing as Xerox. I know, right? Kind of crazy. So here's what we had. We had scribes who would receive a letter or a, a message or a story. And these scribes would go in and they would copy this because they didn't have Xerox and they would copy the letters that they began to see. And so now you move from having one manuscript to now having two, and those scribes would pass down those, those copies, and it, that would move from two to four, and, and so all of a sudden, you can be, begin to understand that the greater number of copies and manuscripts, the better, because as these scribes would pass down the copies, as these copies would get disseminated throughout the ancient world, what it would really help them with is to know that if there was ever an, a grammatical error, then that would be tossed out, so just imagine that if you have all of a sudden 10 different manuscript copies, nine say one thing and one says the other, then they would look at that and they would say, oh, you know what, this doesn't necessarily jive. There's a grammatical error or there's an internal error and they would throw that out. And so that helps us to understand how do we know that the scribes were actually writing well? Well, first of all, they were professionals. They were professionals in what they did and their craft and in their trade, but because they had a greater number of manuscript copies, even when there might've been human error, those copies, helped to check their work. So that they knew what we have here is the actual original message. And so whenever you think about this, applying it to the telephone game, imagine that the telephone game works really well whenever it's one person passing the message along to the next person, passing it along to the next person. But if you have that original message and it's shared publicly to two people, And then those two people share it with two people. Now all of a sudden you have four different people who have heard the original message. And if one of those four shares something that's different, the other three can then begin to correct their thinking. So that's how it's so important. That's why it's so important to have a high number of manuscripts and manuscript copies. Because you throw out the ones that are wrong. You destroy them. But then whenever you look about it, you think about what about the timeline and the time frame of it all? Well, if somebody in the telephone game shares something and then the, the next person or, or people wait two, three hours, maybe even to the next day, obviously it's like there's a time gap there and there's more distortion that could have happened in that time gap. So once again, we got to have a very tight timeline and a lot of manuscript copies. And that's not even just talking about the idea that this is written down. So telephone game works because it's, it's spoken out loud. If someone was to write it down, that would help to verify it even more. And so what then is the textual criticism of the the Bible compared to other ancient literature? What I want to do is I want to lay before you a couple of documents that maybe you read when you were in high school or college. I was a philosophy minor in my undergrad, so I kind of geek out a little bit on philosophy and textual criticism. Maybe your eyes are glazing over right now, but hang with me here because here's what it is. Uh, We can see a chart, and you can see the work, the date written, the time lapse, and the, the manuscript copies. And so once again, you want a tight time lapse, and you want a large number of copies. The first one is a guy by the name of Aristotle. And he lived and wrote sometime between 450 to 385 BC. And the time between his life and and when some of these copies emerged was about 1,400 years. And the number of copies that we have, right around five. So you can see a big time frame and a little number of copies. Next, we go to his teacher, which is a guy by the name of Plato. Okay, and Plato lived 427 to 347 BC. The time between his life and some of his writings was 900 years. And we have about seven copies of that. So you can begin to see, like, we're okay reading some of these other ancient literatures, but it's like, well, can we really trust the Bible? We'll get to that in a second. the next one is Caesar's Gallic War. He talked from a historical standpoint, Julius Caesar's, uh, about talking into uh, the, the defeat of Gaul at the time. He lived 144 BC. The time lapse between his life and the events and some of the writings was 500 years with copies 9 to 10. So then how does the New Testament, another contemporary work of this time, stack up? It's this. And if you want to take a photo of this, I won't judge you at all. You can snap a photo all you want. But the New Testament the events occurred sometime in the range of 40 to 100 AD. The life of Christ uh, right around in there. And we can begin to see that the time lapse between those events was 30 years up to 310 years between those times and when the copies occurred. And then we can see that there were 5,000 Greek copies and 10,000 Latin copies. And this isn't even including some of the early church writers who would even quote scripture within their writings. We can go back and even add more to the manuscript copy evidence that we have. So you can begin to see here that from an external verifiability standpoint, the Bible is in a class of its own. And when we think about even more contemporary works like William Shakespeare, is it William or is it Billy? Is it Billy Shakespeare? I don't know, but when you look at William Shakespeare's work, there are actually pieces of his writing that we still can't find today. So the New Testament, which was written thousands of years before William Shakespeare, is even more historically reliable than old Bill Shakespeare. Okay, so this is what we can ultimately unpack is that the Bible from an external standpoint is extremely reliable. And, you know, for some of us, we really love these things. And, and so we've got an event coming up in a couple of weeks called Engage Your Mind, uh, where we're going to be looking at the, D, the, the, D, the Dead Sea Scrolls and Michael Weiss, who is a global scholar. Okay, I'm not the one who's going to be teaching on this. Thank the Lord. It's going to be Michael Weiss, who's going to be talking about the Dead Sea Scrolls and, and the impact that it's had on our Bible. And so if you'd like to dig into this even more, I invite you to bring your questions, come back for that event. You can see the notes for that on the screen. But you can see that there is external reliability. Now I want to shift to internal reliability. How do we know that the Bible is internally accurate and internally verifiable? Well, just as a reminder, anytime you have these manuscript copies, if you came across a grammatical error, they could throw it out. But now, also, what we see is that whenever the scribes or the audiences would come across maybe another writing and they're like, you know what, this story or this message doesn't quite jive with the other stories that we've heard, Uh, there needs to be kind of a, we need to look into this a little bit more because there's not a consistency internally with other books we know to be true. Let me just give you an example. There is, maybe some of you know this, there is another gospel. Some of y'all are like, what? It's the Gospel of Thomas. Okay, maybe some of you, how many of y'all have heard of the Gospel of Thomas? Let's see, okay, so about nine of you. Okay, for the rest of us here, what is the Gospel of Thomas? Well, for many of you, you know that Jesus had a disciple, had a follower named Thomas. In fact, he had an affectionate nickname, which was Doubting Thomas. And so we look at that and it's like, well, we've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, who are all eyewitnesses or secondhand eyewitnesses to the life and work of Jesus, Thomas was there. I mean, clearly Thomas was a firsthand eyewitness of Jesus as well. So why don't we have the gospel of Thomas in our Bibles today? Well, whenever you look at the gospel of Thomas, whenever you begin to read and unpack that, uh, there are some things that are similar, but there is a wide range of things that have a skewed view of who Jesus is. I mean, it's almost like contradictory to the rest of the gospel accounts and the the rest of these manuscript uh, proofs that we have. But not only that, whenever you start to look at the external textual criticism test, what we find out is that the gospel of Thomas was written somewhere in the range of 200 to 300 years after Thomas lived. So the question is, well, how did Thomas write a book two to 300 years after he died? Do you want the answer? He didn't, right? I mean, he might be good, but man, he is not that good, all right? So so we ultimately see that the Gospel of Thomas didn't pass either the internal or the external test. But as we think about more of the internal reliability, a lot of people just, you know, they kind of have this other objection. Well, Zach, what about all the contradictions in the Bible? You ever heard that one? What about all the contradictions in the Bible? Hey, that's a fair question that I want us to look into and ask as well. You see, because it typically goes like this. You know, one gospel writer says this, and another writer says that. And it just seems like, you know, these things, they can't even begin to agree with each other. So how do we know this to be true? What what I would assert to you, what I would lay at your feet is this. The accounts that we see in Scripture are not contradictory. Rather, they're complementary. Okay, they're not contradictory, but rather they are complementary. And the reason why we say this is because whenever we look at the author's They all come from a different expertise, a different upbringing, and a different angle that they're viewing Jesus and the work of God. Uh, Let's just use the gospel accounts for example. You've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Well, Matthew was a tax collector, meaning that he was raised as a a young Jewish boy, so he elevates within his writing a, a lot of Hebrew scripture and a lot of Hebrew traditions, and he's elevating Jesus as the king of the Jews. But then you look at Luke, for example. Well, what was Luke's profession? Luke was a doctor. He was a physician by trade. And so as you watch and as you read Luke's gospel, he's taking that angle a little bit. In fact, Luke's gospel is the only gospel that talks about Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane the night before his crucifixion, uh, where he is under so much stress and duress that it says that his pores opened up and he began to sweat, not only sweat, but drops of blood as well. And this is a physical phenomenon. I want to make sure I get it right, called hematohydrosis. Okay, is it any coincidence that Luke is talking about this? Because Luke is a doctor and a physician. But then they say, well, the other gospel writers didn't talk about that. Does that mean it didn't happen? No. It means that he is elevating a certain level of his own expertise. And so what we see is that from those different angles, they're giving us a far more fuller picture of who Jesus is and what he's done in our lives. And so let's just use this example in real life. Suppose you're downtown or or, or somewhere else and you see a car accident, a car crash. And standing on three different corners, there are eyewitnesses, but each of those eyewitnesses come from a different background. Suppose there's a mechanic on one corner. Well, that mechanic is going to look and say, well, hey, here's the make, model, trims, maybe even the, the, the tires that were used on each car. Maybe there's an attorney on the other corner, and the attorney's going to tell the story as well, but the attorney is going to say, well, this law was broken, and this law, and this person's, uh, you know, liable for this, and and here's what's going on here. They're telling them from different angles, and then suppose I'm on the other corner. Like, what am I going to do? I'm going to be like, ah, there's so much blood. Like, what's going on here, right? I wouldn't know what to do. Hopefully, I'd be a little bit helpful. I'd be like, hey, you know, can I help, like, pray for you? Like, I don't know. Maybe I'd be a little more helpful than that, I'd like to think that I'd like rip, like Hulk smash, I'd rip the door off and like carry somebody out and, you know, but probably not, right? The point is, is that we would tell the stories, the same story, from complimentary, not contradictory standpoints. And even more so, whenever attorneys go to look for eyewitnesses, as they're hearing their eyewitness testimony, if you've got eyewitnesses who are saying the exact thing word for word, verbatim, then they know that there has been some type of eyewitness tampering going on. And so friends, we need not be worried and afraid of these complementary points. Because as I said before, these complementary, not contradictory points, what they do is they actually elevate a far more robust picture and understanding of who Jesus is and his work in our lives. And so I just kind of want to land this reliability question with a quote that's kind of surfaced around Christian scholarship. I don't know who to attribute it to, but it's true, it goes like this, it goes, the Bible is, stands in a class of its own because the Bible was written from Genesis to Revelation over a time span of about 1,500 years on three different continents and three different languages by 40 different authors. And yet despite all of that, it, it points to the one singular purpose of elevating the person and the work of Jesus in our lives. The Bible was written by kings and prophets, by military generals, by shepherds and scribes. And it's written in poetry and prose and narrative and wisdom literature. It has so many genres. And yet, it elevates for us who Jesus is and what he's done for us in our lives. And so, friends, I just hope that you can see, man, there there is reasonable response for seeing that the Bible is reliable from both an external and an internal standpoint, But now I wanna shift our attention to this next question. Well, if the Bible is trustworthy, what then do I do with it? And I just wanna invite you, keep digging into that question. I wanna keep knowing that the Bible is trustworthy, but now let's look at what do we do with it? And when I think about this, I I think about Hebrews chapter 4. When we think about its application, the God's word to our lives, it says this. For the word of God, all of scripture, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So a couple of observations. First of all, it says the word of God is living and active. Okay, the Bible isn't just some wooden old collection of books, but it is living and active. That sometimes as we read God's word, God's word also reads us and reveals to us places in our lives through the, this two-edged sword that we can be transformed for God's glory and our good. It says that the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. Okay, it's not like some battle axe or battle sword that's coming through and just wreaking havoc on people, uh, but it is a precise instrument, almost like a scalpel, because we know that it cuts through the division of soul and spirit joints and marrow. And so I think about this, like you would not do open-heart surgery with a chainsaw, right? right, It's kind of like a morbid image, but God's word is can pierce our hearts and our souls to the finest, most intimate place so that we can be transformed for God's glory and for our good. And so when I think about God's word, how it's living and active, I think about the Protestant reformer, Martin Luther, who really was captivated by God's word. He said these words. You can kind of hear Hebrews 4 in his his quote here. He says, the Bible is alive. It speaks to me. It has feet it runs after me. It has hands. It lays hold of me. And as I read this, I'm like, man, this sounds more like a horror movie, okay? Well, like, I mean, could you just imagine getting chased by the Bible? But it's not something that, that should be feared, but rather the Bible leads us to life and peace and provision. That's God's hope for each and every one of us. But when you think about Martin Luther, okay, he was raised in a church context where at the time priests really sought to distort messages and where they really wanted to subjugate the people of God, uh, the, the church at that time. And they wanted to keep up guilt and shame and keep God's word from them. And Martin Luther felt this calling and conviction on his life. He thought. He thought. You know what? As I study God's word, and as I begin to see how it's not—I'm not just reading it, but it's reading me—the word of God should be put in every person's own language, so that ordinary people can read the extraordinary word of God. And Luther nearly lost his life for this. But he's like, people should not be shamed. People should not be guilted because some clergy are twisting and distorting the message of God. And so, as he is working to place the word of God into our everyday common language, he is giving us a direct line to hear from God so that God's word and God's presence might chase after us and, and lay hold of us and, and stir up our hearts and our affections for God. So the Bible for us is a direct line to the Almighty. Just imagine that. That It, it speaks to us in all aspects of our lives. And so I just wanna invite you, friends, what do we do with the Bible then? Well, I, I invite you, pick it up and read it. You know, as a dad, I've got, you know, all the kids' movies in the background of our house right now, and we've had Finding Nemo just playing nonstop. So I call this the Bible reading plan according to Dory. You ready? Just keep reading, just keep reading. All right, that is the last time that I will ever sing in front of you, all right? So take a mental picture of it. But pick up the Bible and just keep reading. A lot of times people are like, man, I'm so stressed out. Where do I begin? The Bible is so overwhelming. It's such a collection of books. It starts with just a little bit Every single day. And just 10 to 15 minutes, if you read 10 to 15 minutes a day, you could read the Bible in less than a year. Allow me to illustrate. The Bible has about 757,439 words. To prep for this message, I went through my Bible and I counted every single one of them, all right? From there, the average person, I'm kidding y'all, I googled it, all right, good. The average person reads about 200 to 300 words per minute. So even if you're on the low side of that and you read 15 minutes a day, roughly that's about 3,000 words, about three to four chapters. If you did this, you would read the Bible cover to cover in 253 days, less than a year with plenty of margin to spare. And so the Bible is accessible. It takes a little bit at a time. Uh, But I get it, you know, it's like, man, it's still so overwhelming. You know, for some of us, it's like, rather than reading three or four chapters, it might look, just simply put, reading a chapter a day. That's what I've been doing for the past several months. I've been digging into the book of Acts and reading a proverb every day. One chapter, each verse, I'm just going through it slowly and methodically and reading a proverbs as well. But then people ask the question, well, where do I start? I encourage people, start in one of the Gospels. Start in the Gospel of Mark or the Gospel of John. Because what you'll see is you'll see a narrative. You'll see parables emerge giving us this picture of who Jesus is. And people often ask the question, well, Zach, how do I read the Bible? It just seems so daunting. I'm going to give you three questions that we're using at Westwood. Uh, these three questions are, are part of a bigger kind of guide that we have, which I'll talk to in a moment here. But those three questions, when you read Scripture, when you go to John or Mark, you just ask this question. What does this say about God? Okay, what does this passage, what does this verse say about God? Can I learn from him, his love, his peace, his provision? And then second, what does this say about humanity, just broadly speaking? And then third, how is this passage prompting me to respond? Is there a sin to confess? Is there a prayer to pray? Is there a command to obey? And when you start to ask these three questions, you'll see the word of God come alive in your life to help us be and love like Jesus in all things. And so like I said, this is part of one of the the things that we are rolling out for folks. And a lot of times we hear from people, it's like, yeah, I get the questions, I get where to start, but I just need a guide. I need a friend, I need a a coach, somebody to help me in that. And so what we've started to do here at Westwood, we we have actually rolled that out uh, to where people can sit with a friend who will guide them and direct them and coach them through how to read God's word. Some of the richest moments are whenever I sit with other people and we read God's word together. And so if that's you, I just invite you. You can fill it out on your engagement card, which will pop up here in a little bit. Or you can head out to our info spots at all of our campuses. We have people there who would love to journey with you, to be guides and coaches to help you in this idea of discovering the Bible for yourself. But not only that, at, at the info spot, we've got Bibles there as well. We invite you, to pick up a Bible and just keep reading. Well, one of the amazing stories is that we had a cool instance of somebody who was impacted by this methodology of studying the Bible, of having a coach and a guide walk through them. For the last six or seven weeks... Uh, there's a gentleman named Brandon. And Brandon stood on this stage last Sunday as he was baptized. He said, as a dad, I wanna be a model of faith for my family and for my kids. I wanna say I have decided to follow Jesus. And then he went down to the waters and he got baptized. And I had a chance to chat with Brandon this last week and and ask him a little bit about uh, what led up to that baptism. And he said he and his coach, his guide, a guy by the name of Ben, had been meeting for about six or seven weeks using these questions and a few others. And I said, well, Brandon, how has that impacted your life? And he shared, well, you know what? We lost a beloved family member. We've navigated some uncertainty with career changes. We've also had some scary health moments. But because we've been digging into God's word with each other, I have greater profound sense of God's wisdom, God's provision, God's peace, and even purpose through the hardships and difficulties. That's what it looks like to walk through God's word with another person. So if that's you, stop out at the info spot or fill out that engagement card. But friends, I hope that you can see a reasonable response that the Bible from an external and internal case is reliable. It is trustworthy. We can lean on it and read it. And then my invitation to you is this, just keep reading. Keep reading it that we might be and love like Jesus, transformed into his image for his glory and for our good. Well, friends, today is a special day because not only are we kicking off asking for a friend, but it is an opportunity for us to bring to conclusion this Love Builds initiative, which we have journeyed through for the last several months. So I've got a friend here. I call him a friend. He may, may not want to claim me as a friend. But Joel, asking for a friend, how did Love Build go? Let's give it up for Joel.
0: Uh, thank you, Zach, for that teaching this morning as well it's so important and I'm glad to give an update here just some context especially for those that are guests over the last several months I have been um, really sharing on the authority of God's word um, God's intent which by the way at Westwood when it comes to the Bible or scripture we believe that it is authoritative for life faith and practice because if it isn't Then we look to humans to be that authoritative voice. And then you see the experience of it, it's profound. And so I've made this promise to you over these last several months that God wants to do a great work in you, for you, And through you and where do I base that promise it's not my opinion of it it comes from the Word of God and we've seen that God is on the move as Zach even gave testimony to what Brandon did last week on Easter Sunday what an amazing day it was when Brandon shared his faith and was baptized can I tell you we baptized by the end of Sunday 80 people and we give thanks for God is on the move transforming lives wanting to do something It is so good in us and for us and through us as we avail ourselves to that given end. After Easter, that first Easter, do you remember what Jesus did? He rose from the dead. He hung around with his friends and his disciples for about 40 days. And in that 40 days, he readied them. He prepared them for his work. And before he ascended, he said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, here near far. So Love Builds and this initiative has been grounded in the word of God and the goodness of the Holy Spirit that is in us. To the end that, I invited you with all boldness, would you become an FP? Anybody, what did the FP stand for? First paragrapher, very good. I was inviting you to say yes and put your name and your story in the first paragraph of Westwood's next chapter called Love Builds. And it is a two-year generosity initiative of God's love um, here, near, and far. In fact, it is intended to accelerate that very call of God given 2,000 years ago, not just to them, but to us as well. And I also shared with you that I have a Love Builds journal that I started writing in because we began this journey with the first Love Builds event on October 28th. And for these five and a half, almost six months, we have had 13 Love Builds events, dozens of different kinds of encounters and engagement opportunities for all of us with this invitation for you. And this is my Love Builds journal um, that I brought it with me today. And I thought I'd read to you, by the way, the journal's almost full. There are about 10 pages left in it. And it's filled with your stories, the goodness of God at work in your lives. But I wanted to begin the journey with the journal on October 28th, which was my first entry, and I felt it was right and good to begin with God. Don't you think that was a wise thing to do? So my first sentence is G O E, God over everything. Everything comes from God, everything belongs to God, everything is ruled by God, and everything is returned to God. And then I continued with 1 Corinthians 8, 1. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And I wrote these words. This is the first paragraph on the first page to a new chapter in the Westwood story. It's God's story. So I humbly submit myself to the Lord God, who is the Lord of our legs as we run after his purpose as a community of faith to let love build up, us and the world longing for his love here near and far one of the greatest rewards that we receive for serving God is permission to do more it's the greatest privilege and you have done more so do you want to see the results of love built, I have waited for this day for so long, and I'm so grateful. This is it, and you can see it's building toward a nine million dollar goal. And it came out as nine million eight hundred and seventy-three thousand four hundred and thirty-nine dollars, and we praise God. And by the way, thirty-six cents. So whoever gave the 36 cents, we just praise God for that part of it. And can I just share a couple thoughts related to it? 68 of the Love Builds pledge cards came from people who have never given a dollar to the work of uh, God through Westwood Community Church. I praise God for the bold faith of the 68 of you who said, I want to be in on this mission. And the winds go far beyond anything we would have dreamed or imagined related to just financial investment into the acceleration of here near far. The number of people who've returned from being online, which, you know, is still a journey for us and we celebrate online. Some of you will always be online and some of you have just gotten comfortable with online and have been slower to come back and we invite you to come back. So that's happening. The number of people who are engaging and volunteering in ministry is accelerating, accelerating our here ministries at all of our campus. So much good is happening happening through this so I was asked um, because I got this number last night at 9 p.m. and I'm just going to tell you I didn't sleep very well last night the adrenaline was flowing and the question was raised what was your response when you got the number Joel and I had two responses (sighs) The first was just humble gratitude that God would do this within our community of faith. It's so absolutely extraordinary. And the other side of me thought, we well, should really uncork the finest champagne in the world, just figuratively speaking, but we should. Jesus is worth all of our lives and all we could give to him. So let's do a both and. Um, I'd like to share with you the last page of my journal, which I wrote after 9 p.m. last night, and I'm sure that there'll be a few more pages still to come. But the last page of my journal, I wrote the prayer of David from 1 Chronicles 29, 13. Now, our God, we give you thanks and praise for your glorious name. But who am I and who are we that we should be able to give as generously as this? Everything comes from you. And we have given you only what comes from your hand. And I want you to see in that prayer of David so long ago, the rhythm of life that has been Westwood. God gives with open hands. We receive believing he wants to give us a lot. With open hands, we give it away, believing we cannot outgive God. And God receives glory, honor, and praise, and he gives all the more. And we put a smile on the face of God. I just say, Westwood Community Church, we put a smile on the face of God. And that's a good day. So I want to wrap up with just this thought, because this year our key word for 2023 is confidence. To grow in confidence. And I base that on the authority of God's word in Hebrews four sixteen. In a moment, we're gonna recite it together. But throughout the course of the year, I will salt and pepper that key word of confidence because we will grow in confidence in Christ, not self in 2023. Let that be your prayer, that we will grow not with um, self esteem, but Christ esteem. So I'm gonna invite you to stand wherever you might be, even if you're at home and declare together in unison, The authority of God's word and the promise that comes from Hebrews 4.16, with gladness of heart, join me. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need.